We are live. Welcome back to We're All Stories in the End. Tristan. Yes, it's uh, John Pudler here. It's uh, wonderful to be back from the dead. Hello so, there, Ian. It's a pleasure to see you. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I believe you're a big fan of my work. Which did you like best? Was it was it Russell Gabbage? <laughs> Easily. Was it was it the, the was it the Navy Nark? <laughs> It was Murder Most Foul, episode four. Um, yes, so, that was my favourite. <laughs> what we're going to do, um, just for anyone Hi. who hasn't yes. heard your Hello. previous episode, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you the the question: um, Who the hell is Tristan Alfaro? So you can introduce yourself. Mm-hmm. But because we're reviewing deceit, you can only answer with lies. So if you're ready, <laughs> who the hell is Tristan Alfaro? <laughs> Um, I'm a young, good-looking uh, man uh, from uh, Scotland. Sure. Uh, I'm very attractive and, and rich. Uh, um, I've never read a Doctor Who book. Um, I've never even – I don't know what Doctor Who is. Uh, I'm a big fan of – uh, Jean-Paul uh, Sartre. What else would you like to know? That's, I mean, that's enough. Um, you know, speaking as the rightful heir to the throne of Norway, um, uh, you know, it's always good to My leash. So, yes, bow and scrape, bow and scrape. So here we are. I'm scraping. It's yeah. Sorry about that. Don't don't scrape on camera. I can see that, and it's upsetting <laughs> me. Um, here we are. It's the middle of November. Trust me on this. And we're here to talk about Deceit. Deceit is one of those Doctor Who new adventures. Not an eighth Doctor adventure, a new adventure. It features the seventh Doctor, Bunny Summerfield, and our old friend Ace, who's come back from, you know, three years out or four books out, if you want to be pedantic about it. Um, what did you What did you think to the return of Ace? Well, did did Ace need to go? Is the question I was wondering. Um, and if Ace did need to go, and they felt like they needed to bring a new character in, why bring her back? Especially when she seems to be quite different to how she was when we last uh, saw her in Love and War. Or is this a logical extension of where we left Ace in Love and War? But we've got Benny. Why? Why do we need Ace? It's a it's a great point, and I think you know, like I said, we're it's four books later, so it's not as if Virgin got rid of Ace, left it for a year, noticed the sales were going down, so they thought, let's bring back Ace, and we'll get more more people on board. This was just, I guess, an idea that, um, and we'll assume it was Peter Darvill Evans. It probably says exactly Mm -hmm. who thought of it in that book by 
David J. Howe, which I need to read again at some point. Um, it just seems oh, yeah, like yeah, one. a bit of a a bit of a conceit just to get rid of her, do something a bit exciting for a few books, and then just I guess retool the character so that she works better on the printed page. Now, was that your experience? Um, I mean, th- this is I, I seem to recall that we referred to her as this is space bit Jace, um, the You're lovingly right. sexist yes. um, title that we ended up giving her. Um, I mean, my my gun instinct is that it becomes a different character. Um, what Peter Darvill Evans obviously wants to do is bring in someone who's got baggage with and, and has a, a history with the Doctor. Benny is still very new at this point and doesn't have that history uh, yet. Ace was originally the audience surrogate, but now she's not. Benny is. And so we're seeing Ace through Benny's eyes, but it then leads me to again question why bother if you wanted to do that, just bring in a new companion. Um, you, do, you obviously don't get the history with, with the Doctor, but it ends up making for a more confrontational environment uh, in the TARDIS, but it's not like something this, that this is something that they had developed as you say, if they'd brought it back a year later uh, based on feedback with the readership, this is clearly something that they have thought out. Uh, but does it work and is it necessary? What so do you think? I, I suspect that the – and I could be way off beam on this, but I suspect the idea was we're making this series of books more adult and more um, – more in in tune with the interests of the 20 and 30 something audience we've got so we need to have a bit more sex in these books and maybe they were a bit squeamish about putting young ace into that kind of uh genre because she was still a very young woman and and maybe they felt if they just aged her up a bit then they could really do what they wanted with her that could be that could I, be it. yeah i can i can see that um my query would be then that instead of bringing her back only three years later for her, maybe it needs to be 10 years later because if we assume she's 19, say, in Love and War, I mean, she's still only 22. So there's two things going on. There's the very nerdy part of me which is thinking she's now this master tactician, this weapons expert. How has she learned that in three years? Yeah, and at the time, you know, coming back as a a 23-year-old was very exotic and exciting when you're a teenage boy reading these things. But now, you know, a 22-, 23-year-old is still not really qualified or, you know, their very early career, they're still very strident, very young, very prone to mistakes. The only thing you can really do at the age of 22 is, is win the Formula One World Championship. Which is a book that I would have liked to have seen, um, and sure. you know, a bit of a bit of a lose lose on Virgin's part that they didn't actually publish, you know, Doctor Who and the Formula One uh, World Championship. Well, or, or my title. or my rough draft, which was Nigel Mansell and the Dimension of Death, <laughs> where Nigel Mansell and his moustache and his time travelling Williams Renault. 
and somehow he's got a sidecar for a companion. They travel through time and space in in because that car was so good. Um, you you may remember he won nine of the sixteen races in nineteen ninety two in that car. So it was clearly a wonderful yes. Uh, bigger on the inside kind of thing and so Nigel Mansell and companion would would travel through time and space having adventures Virgin didn't even bother sending me a a fuck off letter for that they didn't it's it's disappointing that they never cashed in on the lucrative Doctor Who Formula One crossover because you know there's clearly a market there that is untapped yeah Um, sure why 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 we haven't had you know the the likes of of Chinbeard, Telos. <laughs> Why haven't they come to you to launch a new range? Um, I think they were I mean, put I'm, off by the 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 prospect that in a few years Mansell would have to regenerate into Damon Hill. Um, let's let's abandon this racing cul-de-sac. Um, uh, and, uh, and racing in a cul-de-sac. Again, strikes me as a very stupid idea. Very bad idea. I can see why they don't do it. Very bad idea. Unless you're Mansell and you have the car control to be able to turn in that tight of a turning circle. But um, but we digress. What did you what did you make of deceit at the time you read it? Ah, well, at the time I read it, I can't tell you because that was so far back in the past that I have zero recollection of when I read it, it wouldn't have been at the time. Um, it would have been sometime in the mid nineties, so pro- probably a couple of years after it uh, it came out. Um, so I have zero recollection of this book at all. Wow! Um, this is the first time I would have read it. Yeah, in yeah, twenty five wow. years. Um. So I can I can't give you any context of from the time. Uh, I, can, I can give you context now. Well, I will come to that. I mean, um, I I remember at the time, I really I really enjoyed it, and it kind of begun or began, I should say, to use the correct, uh, you know, use the English language properly. It began around begone. It it began did um, a really strong run of about six or seven really really big thick books that were very well written and very exciting and i think it kind of kicked the new adventures on from what they had been which was a very bitty um a lot of people writing homages to the tv show but it was kind of floundering around in search of a direction and i think this book marked the point where the new adventures became what we know and love (laughs) I think, but so by the time it comes out in '93, the range has proven to be successful, and this is not too long after they've gone to monthly publishing. If I, this if I remember like, rightly, this is it goes highest science, the pit, and then deceit. So this would be April of '93. '93. So I would have first discovered that the NAs even existed in. 94, um, and then I've gone backwards and filled in the gaps since then. So they're clearly getting more assured, um, and I think you've had notable peaks and troughs in, in, in terms of their quality. Um, the Pit, I believe, is probably the most succinctly named book in the history of humanity. Um, but then Love and War 
um, uh, the time one revelation. These are just these are literally revelations. Um, you've got the, the first time authors or people who are new to professionally published Doctor Who. Obviously, they were experienced in the in the fan world. Um, but as you say, this is where it kind of it, it takes strides, and you can see the confidence in the range um, beginning and. Although I thought the the actual story and the plot of Deceit was fairly average, um, I cannot fault the prose. The actual prose style of Peter Darvill Evans was um, it, it's really captivating. So you enjoyed it on this on this reading. I. <sighs> Yes and no. So there was a lot about it I didn't like, um, but the actual style, the delivery, really worked for me. Um, okay. So it, it's more uh, a style in want of a plot. That was that was my big kind of uh, takeaway reading it this time is that you've got a six part story. And the first five parts of that are basically all the characters traveling towards where the story's going to happen. So it reminded me very much of Game of Thrones and that you've got lots of people in, in sort of groups of two and three traveling around the place, kind of waiting for the story to happen at them and talking to each other and, and chattering. And that is very much what I think this this book did. Would you agree? I would. Um, Game of Thrones, that's the one with, with the dragons. Is that right? There are dragons, yes. There are dragons. Okay, so showing my ignorance. Uh, but, yes, it, it's it, it's putting all of the pieces on the board and then very, very slowly uh, getting them together for the denouement. Um but the actual prose and writing style is really engaging. So I, I wasn't bored uh, at all. He's, he's a really compelling writer. And so I, I tracked down the, oh, what are they called? The preludes? Yes. What are they called? The preludes? They were. So I tracked that down and I was grabbed right from the off. Um, so while there are things and plot points that don't work or in some cases – quite problematic now, you know, with the gap of 30 years, um, at no time was I bored. It, it is by no means a boring book. It is very well written. And you can see why he is the editor of the range. Um, and so installing him was a fantastic choice. I think that the – so his, his – obviously his, his prose, I agree, is, is very strong. Um, the characterization was very solid and convincing and it, it carried you along and you're kind of, you've always got one eye on, on how far into the book you are and when, when's it all going to kick off. But the, I suppose the, the main problem with it is, is the ending. To me, the ending felt very kind of, and that's the word count. I'm going to do something really obvious and predictable, and um, you know, by essentially downloading the villain of the book into the memory of the TARDIS. I feel like that's something we've seen happen in the New Adventures before. So I was kind of underwhelmed by the ending on this occasion. 
Yeah, it, it's that old the old joke about um, Terence Dix's later target writing style. You get to page one hundred and twenty and then stop. Uh, so yeah, it did feel a bit like that. Um, some of what they do with the the TARDIS is quite good because it it makes it seem quite menacing uh, when things are going wrong. And Benny is still. I mean, this is only what her third or fourth book. Third. Well, it's the third book after Love and War, so it's a fourth. After Love and War, it's a fourth story. And from memory, transit. She's possessed for pretty much the whole thing. Uh, so she really is very new to this. She's got nothing going on. And again, that's obviously where Ace comes in because, you know, you're bringing a character to experience. But then seeing how frightening the, the TARDIS could be through Benny's eyes, that I, I really enjoyed. Um, I don't think it's really made clear that the reason everything's going wrong is a result of what is happening um, from the... The infection the doctor got on Tina Nog, which was in uh, Witchmark. I don't think that was really clear. Um, brain, brain gone blank. You can edit that bit out. It's it's another one of these books, and I, the more I'm reading these books again, the more I'm encountering this device where the TARDIS goes weird or breaks down or dies or whatever, and. You just think that, you know, the, the doctor's traveling with this ship for, you know, thousands of years and it's his home and it's, they've got such a close bond. But the fucking thing's always breaking down and linking it back to Witchmark, which, you know, he's, I think what he's trying to do is, is kind of make Witchmark more important retrospectively or retroactively. Again, it's that whole mm. language problem that's defeated me there. Um, he's, that's to, called age. Oh, it could be age. Yes. Yeah, it's age. Um, it's it's just it. Frustrating is 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 a bit is a bit of a strong word, but I think on some occasions you just really enjoy a book where the TARDIS just lands and sits there until it leaves again without having a massive nervous breakdown on the inside. It's all very graphic novel slash. TV, it would have looked great visually, but on oh, the page, on TV, it would have been great. Yeah, yeah. On the page, it's just kind well, of because yeah, the, the the page you're just describing endless white corridors. So the elephant in the room is also the elephant on the front cover, which was uh, Absalom Dark. Were you were you a fan? Okay, of first Dark? off, first off, it, it's a relief. Because I don't think I've ever actually heard the name spoken out loud. <laughs> so to hear someone else pronounce it the way that I do is brilliant. So that's 30 years of worry <laughs> negated. <laughs> okay, so that's a relief. Um, y- yeah, I actually quite like. So I don't think at the time when I read it that I would have been aware of Absalom Dark's history because I didn't have access to DWM. Um, so I think there might have been, and obviously not, we didn't have internet in, when I was reading it. Um, so I might have been like very vaguely aware of something, but I would most certainly not have read the comics uh, at the time. I have obviously in, in the years since. Um, and I really like him. I think he's a great character. And 
I've been raised on a diet of 2000 AD. Um, and so it, it's pure early 80s. Like you could, you could put him in with, you know, if you know your 2000 AD, you could put him in with uh, Robo Hunter and um, the ABC Warriors and obviously Judge Dredd and Rogue Trooper. And it fits in perfectly. He's totally the mold of a 2000 AD character. And to have someone like that in Doctor Who, the complete opposite of what Doctor Who is, is great. It's such a good juxtaposition. So I think he's a lot of fun in the comic. Uh, in the book, I don't know how well he works. I don't know how well he's translated into book form. And I think... Part of that for me is probably the NA's penchant for injecting sex for titillation as a way of saying these, you know, these aren't yet dad's Doctor Who kids. This is for the, you know, this is for us. This is for the swear. And there's, there's, <laughs> yeah, and there's 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 tits. That's the strap line they should have gone with instead of stories too broad and too deep for the small screen. They should have said Doctor Who with tits. Now, now without a tits. <laughs> On every third page. So I remember when I was, and I, I say I remember, I don't really remember this too much, but when we were, I was about six, I think, and we had our very first um, holiday abroad and we, we went to Italy. And my dad had bought me from the airport um, news agents, like, and it would have been, I guess, six months old. It would have been like the summer special of DWM from the previous year, and it was a collection of basically four complete comic strips, um, most of which featured Tom, um, yeah. and one of them was Absalom Dark, and. Yeah, when you're a when you're a small kid, the sight of a, a big man with a chainsaw uh, going at Daleks was just the most exciting thing ever. And then the next time I encountered him was there was a. Do you remember the phenomena of the flexi single? Yes. So I got the issue of DWM that had the flexi single of the Absalom Dark theme song, which was um, basically beaches but with someone going i am absalom dark dalek killer <laughs> all over it and um you know it wouldn't have it probably wouldn't have made the top 40 um i mean let's be honest it didn't which is a shame 40. it's it's a it's one of those great lost singles like um i can't think of any others um but yeah so, so uh, i can i can think of the perfect lost single that would go with that Okay. Which is called uh, Mutants in Mega City One, um, and I am trying to remember the name of the band, but it's actually Suggs and Chaz from Madness, uh, and it's on their own uh, label, which was called a very short-lived label that they owned called Zajaz, which again is your two thousand AD. Oh. Uh, link in there. Now, I've got that issue of DWM, which I've managed to pick up on eBay without the flexi-disc much to my uh, eternal disappointment. That is very sad. The first um, yeah. issue of it I got, because we we got it sort of delivered 
um, through the post or whatever. And the cover had been bent so badly that the flexi disc wouldn't play. So I'm not entirely sure how I did get to hear it. I, I can't believe, you know, at the age of whatever I would have been, 11 or so, I would have had the money to buy another copy. But somehow, by so who? By what I'm thinking there, I'm thinking there that the post was uh, doing you a favour. Mm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. This this is shit. So so you shouldn't be exposed to this. <laughs> so it's ninety three, oh, and I I remember this character mm. from a comic I read, you know, a decade earlier, and a really crap song. Um, so it could have gone either way. I think the the inclusion of Absalom Dark in this story, and I think the single biggest regret is that at no point does he get to chainsaw some Daleks. But obviously, that wasn't allowed. I and and even the amount of the use of the word Dalek, I was quite surprised by because they're mentioned on nearly every second page, mm. and I I realised that the Daleks never appeared in the NAs because of um, I'm assuming the nation state not allowing it, but even allowing the word. I was quite surprised. It's, I'm assuming that it's an interesting like distinction. Thing isn't it? Because if you can mention them and you can allude to uh, adventures that they've been in, you are basically including them. You know, just because yeah, they're not... That, they're not I right. don't know how they got through that. I'm trying to remember the timeline. So Absalom Dark first appears in, in as a backup strip in DWM, and I'm thinking it's about 81. Does that sound about right to you? Yep, yep. Would help if I'd read up on this, but then he's brought back into the magazine for—is it Nemesis of the Daleks? Oh yeah, which was about the same time because he's as brought, his book, wasn't it? So it must be a little bit beforehand because they already know his fate, um, and so he's then brought back. But I'm—I'm I'm assuming we haven't seen him in the intervening, so it must have been about ten years between appearances. Um, and so what? why why bring him in? Is this to, to drive up sales? Is it? Is it to contrast him with Ace? Or is it just to, hey, this would be a fun idea, let's chuck him in? Well, is he, is he much of a contrast with Ace? I mean, she's slightly more thoughtful and tactical about things and he's much more brute force. But given that they wanted to establish this new incarnation of Ace as being a lot more action... And a lot less, you know, mm-hmm. I was going to say dithering. That's a terrible expression. A lot less thought and and tactical nows. So I'm not sure that that works as a juxtaposition. I'm not sure if he's brought back as fan service because the bulk of, well, I, do, I don't know. I mean, I guess the bulk of the New Adventures audience were people who'd been fans for 10, 20 years and, and thus would have really got off on, Absalom Dark appearing, but it wouldn't have made it wouldn't have meant anything to sort of fairly recent viewers of the TV show or the mythical casual reader who, let's be honest, never existed for these books. No, I can't imagine that you ever had a casual audience uh, for these. Um, so this means that yeah, it, it's for a dedicated hardcore of a few thousand fans who know their stuff. They will have already read the DWM. Uh, issues and they've seen Absalom Dark die apparently and then we have him reappearing 
in this in a supposedly earlier point in his time stream, or at least so Ace so believes. But she's being manipulated again by the, the arch manipulator. Um, but then he's he at the end he's just just bang gone. Whoops, sorry. In, in a very disappointing way. So I thought that was supposed to be funny, and I read it as funny. I read it as comedy, where Ace just accidentally got chops his head off or shoots him or something, which is um, a very interesting way to do it. Yeah. Um, I've just realised that um, shrugging and on yeah on a podcast is really works really well. I'll I'll make a I'll jingle. Do it I'll make a shrug jingle, and then every time you shrug, I can just go shrug like that. It'll be it'll be great. Don't worry. So um, we've so Ace, we're kind of ambivalent about. She kind of works, but she's not quite. Yeah, you know, she's she's still a bit too nice to the Doctor. She's still a bit too gung ho about returning to the TARDIS and carrying on where she left off. Bernice, I think this is. As is true of pretty much every new adventure from this point onwards, this is Bernice's book, really, and she's just marvellous and she can do no wrong. Um, well, and, and this is a testament, again, to Peter Darville Evans' writing, is that she's immensely likeable. And and you can see why she has endured for so long in that she's quite possibly one of the ultimate audience surrogates that Doctor Who has ever had. And it, it's so sad that you won't get something like that on TV because obviously the nature of TV necessitates the, the constant change for, for Doctor Who. But she, she's immensely likable. She's very sympathetic. Um, and you just you want to see more of her. Uh, and it gets to the point that Ace becomes very unlikable. Uh, the Doctor is this mysterious shadowy background figure. And so she carries the book and you can see how then she manages to carry her own series. And even now 30, 30 years later, she's still going really, really strong. Um, and part of that is I think down to obviously the, the creation. And I wonder how much of the creation of the character is Paul Connell and how much of that is down to Peter Darvill uh, Evans, because he must have had a hand in her her creation. I guess so, um, but I think I because literally every author, with maybe one exception in one book, does her really well. So I think she's kind of author proof, and I think the idea is author proof as well there is there is no scope to cock this character up or do the wrong thing with it because everyone gets her so right and it never happened again with a, a companion so another aspect that's just occurred to me kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about this being a kind of very loose indirect sequel to Witchmark. it's also a very loose indirect sequel to warhead by andrew cartmel because you have the same company the the butler institute that was developing ai in warhead here we are 500 years later and that that corporation has now evolved into the spinwood corporation but paul is essentially the same 
intelligence as was the uh, enemy in Warhead. You're probably going to have to take my word for it because I've read it recently and you probably haven't. I don't know. Um, so, I, I haven't. I've read the summary, so I'm aware. So I'm guessing that Darvel Evans would have written this fairly soon after receiving the manuscripts for um, the the Cat's Cradle books and just decided to run with it and, and use as many ideas from there as he could in order for this ongoing series of books to become more cohesive and more its own thing. And I think that's... And it, ref- it reflects that. It reflects that cohesion because it, it's clearly... It's, it's the ripples, it's the after effects. And so it makes it feel like a more comprehensive, that this is one ongoing story that will reward you if you stick with it because yeah, events that happen in certain books will have uh, knock-on effects. And so, again, yeah, it, it creates that, that universe um, that really draws, uh, draws you in. And so whether you like a book, you know, one book might be a bit uh, hit and miss, one book might be fantastic, you can still feel like this is one ongoing story. And he... He very obviously felt at the time that this is this is it for Doctor Who. Doctor Who is not coming back, and it's, it's clear by ninety three. And I don't know what point the Dark Dimension idea has. Oh, there's going to be this thing that's now not happening, um, and so this is now the the standard bearer of Doctor Who. This is it. This is the legacy, and he I does a, a great job with that. We should probably wrap this up. Is there was there anything else you wanted to touch on? Um, there's a few problematic elements, um, and this was uh, very well highlighted in. There's a recent book which I should have with me uh, called Time Worm, which is a, a guide to um, prose Doctor Who, starting with the, the New Adventures. I can't even tell you the names of the authors. Um, this might be a, a bit where future Ian can jump in and say, ah, yes, Tristan is talking about Time Worm. Yes, I will written do. By, mm, um, and they do raise the, the very interesting point, <clears throat> the, the problematic nature of Lacuna and, and Britta. And so I can see at the time in 1993 what essentially appears to be um, a, a, a lesbian sadomasochistic villain uh, might have seemed like, you know, titillating and thrilling. It does come across as quite playing for a teenage audience of boys that want to be titillated. And yes, at the time... Doctor Who was obviously it was going to be boys. This is this is not written for you know teenage women, you know women in their twenties. This is Doctor Who's exclusive audience at this point is sad nerds, yeah, who are men. And it's it's that great joke from the from from the episode Rose, you know she's a, she's a, a she and she's heard of the Doctor. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, um, that was exactly us. I feel so seen, and thank you for for transporting me back to my days of being a sad, lonely <laughs> nerd. I say transporting me back like it's not true now, but um, I think we all know why we're here. 
<laughs> in in your def- in your defence, I know that you're married. So <laughs> you've done all, you've done all right. I've done. All um, right. You've done all right, but I, I can see how. I mean, look, and obviously, this is talking with the benefit of thirty years hindsight. It's not the sort of thing I think that you would uh, get now. And obviously, Doctor Who, you wouldn't get a book like that published. But also, but also with Lacuna and Britta, it was all left up to the reader's imagination. And I suppose at the time, it wasn't that titillating because they didn't have that good of an imagination. At no point do you, does he describe any actual naughtiness. So you're just left with the idea that Lacuna does something with Britta that Britta's not entirely happy about, but everyone else linked to Lacuna through her cranial portal is is getting really quite excited by it all. So it's there. And yeah, it's and I, I think that's to and that's to show us the nature of, of Paul, uh, I suppose, to show us this this is a you know, a terrible villain that needs to be uh, taken down by the doctor. Yeah. Um but it was just it was just one little thing that just kind of nagged at me that um in in the same way that when we did all consuming fire, uh, the, the, again the bit in the brothel, and maybe this makes me sound like like a prude, mm. um, which I don't have any issues with sex and violence, but it's just it's quite jarring in in Doctor Who. Yeah, it's something that the since the show I think has come back has been kind of reinforced. You can do whatever you want within this format, but fundamentally, there's a line. And we know these books crossed that line, and, and we know that these books kept the show alive, and maybe there's a syllogistic point about the show wouldn't have survived without 10 years of being vaguely titillating. I don't know. but um, Yeah, it's- and it's in that scene. It's the same. We have the scene where I mean, Ace is using her sexuality uh, in, in quite a, a positive way, hmm. um, I, because she, she's being depicted as a strong, independent woman who can engage in in sex in a way that is is not not to do with power imbalances, but it's more just to do because she's an adult and she can. Hmm. Um, and again, that may be where having a three-year gap isn't quite enough to my mind because she wouldn't have developed the maturity. But then again, she's a woman, so she'd be far more mentally mature at 23 than I was at <laughs> the, 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 Than we still are. <laughs> in, in our 40s, yeah. Um, but then we have the scene like when – because Dark is always trying to, to shagger um, the bit where he's falling over and he's got his hand between his thighs, um, which I think is part of that, the reputation that the NAs have for, you know, Wahe the Lads, mm. which, again, re- it reflects its audience, but 30 years on, it just comes across as a bit kind of, it's trying too hard. In the same way that, as you and I have discussed in the past, Torchwood is trying too hard because, you know, hey, we're mature because we can swear in this tits. 
Time for a look at Deceit by Peter Darville Evans. This one features the return of Ace after three years away, in her timeline anyway, and a guest appearance from infamous comics character Absalom Dark, Dalek Killer. And it's definitely a novel in three parts. The first is thoughtful and measured and with lots of different threads in play. It's also full of mysteries. Why does Agent DeFreeze have Absalom Dark on ice? What secrets has Scribe Francis uncovered? Who are the hooded counsellors? Why does everyone die at age 30? What does Lacuna want with Britta? And what's the big experiment involving Arcadia? The book jumps around between multiple points of view, sometimes giving us just brief glimpses before pivoting away to another location. Reading it, I wasn't exactly sure where it was all going, and not much of it seemed to involve the Doctor. But unlike other novels in this series where I might have been annoyed at that, this time I was gripped. This was excellent stuff, full of great character development and backstory. Cracking start. Ace generally felt like the same character, just more experienced, a bit more jaded, dare I say it, grown up, and with lots of exciting new gadgets to blow stuff up. Benny's perhaps less well served in this section, basically being trapped in a rapidly constricting TARDIS, until she's almost expelled onto the surface of the pastoral looking Arcadia. Thankfully, she's still as sarcastic as ever. As for whatever was going on with Britta and Lacuna, hmm, that was an unpleasant abusive relationship if nothing else. I'd say the second part starts as dark as defrosted. He's as homicidal as I remember from the Doctor Who Weekly comics, although I don't recall him being quite such a boorish, sex-mad Conan the Barbarian archetype. There was always a bit of a sad, tragic element to his character, with him pining for a lost love that he hardly knew, and channeling his anger into killing as many Daleks as possible. That seems to have been lost in this written word version, or maybe my memory is being kinder. I did like the tie-in to the Nemesis of the Dalek strip, and Ace assuming that that was in Dark's future, so she had to keep him alive, despite wanting to push him out of an airlock. The book also becomes like an action movie. Huge set pieces with the starship destroyed, clifftop crash landing, a massive battle with Ace and Dark and the troopers, fighting against endless counsellor robots. And there's also some nice ideas, such as the giant tortured faces made out of rock in space, that the monsters they were attacking them were projections backed up by force shields to give them a physical presence. And the fact that Arcadia's natural flora and fauna was slowly retaking their planet back after the terraforming. It's certainly fast moving, and there's plenty of peril and death, with the loss of the crew in almost an instant, and then Johansson getting taken down by the androids on the planet. And it's certainly enjoyable as the stakes get higher. But if I'm honest, I kind of preferred the writing in the first section. I also lost count of the number of times Ace had to rein Dark back in from doing something stupid, contemplate how annoying he was, but still a bit sexy and then recall that she had to keep him alive. It got a little bit repetitive. Finally, after some convenient transmat beams and shuttles, all our main characters end up on the Spinwood station, and it's here where I felt the wheels start to come off, if only a little. I really like that the Doctor realises that his past actions may have led to the atrocities committed on the people of Arcadia, and the fact that Paul was composed of half of his brain matter was a nicely gruesome image, even if its plan to become a god in its own universe was a trifle clichéd. And it was clever for the Doctor to plant the idea of the TARDIS connection socket in Benny's head, so that Paul could read it from her. But Paul being just a formless presence, its downfall didn't carry a huge amount of weight, and it seemed to be over in a flash. Lacuna and Britta just wander off together, and Francis just accepts everything and goes home. It feels like much of the promising build-up for these supporting characters from the start of the novel didn't follow through and get the resolutions I hoped for. Maybe that was the point, but I did feel that although I enjoyed reading the book, the end was a little bit of a letdown. And before I forget, let's talk about Absalom Dark, who gets accidentally decapitated by Ace. But it's okay, because he's only a clone. What was the point of him being there then? 
why bring back such an infamous character from another medium if you're not going to have him be responsible for anything meaningful in the plot? Don't get me wrong, I was happy to see him pop by, but it did feel like a bit of a wasted opportunity. He didn't even get to kill any Daleks, for goodness sake. Anyway, as I recalled this, we know that RTD has mined another classic character or story from the early days of the comics. Let's hope that one gets the treatment it deserves.